on today's episode. I came to the view that these ultra-low interest rates were not having just strange impact on investment markets, the asset markets, but were also having quite curious effects on the economy and, and society at large. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today I have with me Edward Chancellor. Edward is a financial historian, author, journalist, and investment strategist. His most recent book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, was longlisted for the FT Business Book of the Year 2022. It was also listed by Amazon as a top business book of 2022 and won the 2023 Hayek Book Prize from the Manhattan Institute. His prior book, Devil Take the Hindmost, A History of Financial Speculation, has been translated into many languages and was a New York Times Book of the Year. He also wrote Crunch Time for Credit and Capital Returns, Investing Through the Capital Cycle. After studying history at Cambridge and Oxford Universities, he worked for Lazard Brothers and until 2014, he was a senior member of the asset allocation team at GMO. He is currently a columnist for Reuters Breaking Views and has contributed to the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Money Week and the New York Review of Books. Edward, lovely to have you on the show. Great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about interest rates. So you could argue why the need to write a book about interest rates. They've been here, as you say, they've been with us for thousands of years. So why do you need to write a book? What is there else to know? What is misunderstood? Well, I embarked upon this project in the middle of the last decade. That was six or seven years into the period of the ultra low zero interest rates that followed the global financial crisis. And at a time when in Europe, interest rates were negative, and um, they were about to turn negative in Japan too the following year. I was, as you mentioned, working for the asset allocation team at GMO in Boston until 2013, I think. And as you probably know from fund managers and asset allocators uh, had all sorts of problems in the wake of the global financial crisis with these very low interest rates. We saw pretty high valuations immediately returned to the US stock market. We saw a uh, increase in international carry trades, a deterioration in credit standards, and a number of other curious effects of the ultra low interest rates. So people on the investment side, on, on the buy side, observed. And by the middle of the last decade, I, I came to the view that that these ultra low interest rates were not having just strange impact on the investment markets, the asset markets, but were also having quite curious effects on the economy and, and society at large. So um, I thought I looked around to see if anyone had written any good books on interest um, where I could sort of read up about it. And I, I didn't. I didn't find that uh, anyone had <laughs> had written anything on the subject for decades. The last books that I 
came across was written in the 1960s, a sort of dry academic tone, almost unreadable. Um, so there we were, these interest, ra interest rates at zero, the question of interest being a subject that hadn't been examined, as far as I could see, by any other writers on finance in recent decades. And so it seemed to me a, a good opportunity to write. I, I, when I embark on a book, it's really because I'm trying to write about a subject that I can't pull another book off the shelf and find that it answers the questions I'm looking for. So it still seems very strange to me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that something so central to everyday life, to the to human existence, the way the world functions, to the allocation of capital, savings, etc., the price of money is still not well understood. And so I guess my question to you is, how can that be? Interest rates have been around for a very long time. We're going to come on to history in a minute. But how is it that, as you say, researching this book, the last thing you found to really read was a arcane, very dry book from 30, 40 years ago, which was almost unreadable. And just to be clear to everyone listening, Edward's book is eminently readable. But how, how can that be? Something so important is still not fully understood. Well, I mean, first of all, <laughs> I'd say that interest is a, a very complicated phenomenon. So the question whether something, whether one can fully understand interest is, is a moot point. But why was it neglected? Well, first of all, I think from the perspective of practitioners, investors, they just go about their business. The bond investors, the equity investors, the investors in real estate, so on, they, they incorporate interest into their activities and leave it at that, so to speak. I think what happened is that the, the economics profession lost sight of what interest is and what interest does. Uh, one of the reasons I started to write, write the book was because the central bankers around the world were saying the threat of deflation is not very far away. Therefore, we'll take interest rates to zero and engage in other monetary experiments, quantitative easing and so on, to try and move the inflation rate a bit higher. And as far as I could see, the central bankers' view of interest was reduced to a, a lever to control inflation. Uh, if inflation is too, too high, as we're seeing uh, at the moment, central banks pick up interest rates, and when it's too low, they bring them down. So that, that was their role, they, as they saw it. And they didn't think more deeply about the role of interest. And so really, my um, the aim of the book was to say, well, what are all these things that the contemporary economists and monetary policymakers, central bankers are ignoring? What are these other functions of interest? And once, you know, in the course of writing the book, I, I came to the conclusion that probably sort of six or seven, possibly eight functions of interest, of which the role of interest in controlling inflation is probably one of the least important. And, and as for why this is a, a neglect of the economics profession, I would say that economics in the post-war period has become very technical, uh, very model-driven, arguably based on sort of metaphors of physics, of equilibrium, 
and has a number of, of assumptions that are highly abstract and unrealistic and, and don't really describe the world as we know it, particularly those of us who've worked in the investment world, they don't really describe that world at all well. So, and if you think of it, Hugo, you've got the the dot-com bust coming up to almost quarter of a century ago, and the economists didn't really understand speculative bubbles. They thought they didn't really exist. And then we had the credit boom going up to the global financial crisis, and the economists didn't really understand credit. Um, and then we got into the era of, era of zero rates and negative rates, and I'd say they still they were still not really understanding the world. So it, it's it, it's to my mind a really a problem of modern economics that it's become so abstract and divorced from the real world. You know, I write from the perspective of a person who's trained as a historian, uh, but is also deep in economic history and has read the history of economic thought. And what was interesting in the course of the research is that I found that most of the great economists in the past had actually thought quite deeply about interest. You know, I could say, for instance, Irving Fisher, the great American economist at Yale University, probably the greatest American economist of the 20th century. He he wrote a marvelous book called the the theory of interest, which you know I would recommend people read. And then you know the other economists, say Friedrich Hayek, uh, you know of the Austrian school, also wrote at length in interest. And then if you go back earlier, there were all these comments and thoughts about why interest arose and and what it did, and and that seemed to be neglected. And and but I say it's a, a widespread neglect of the of modern economics. Unfortunate, but true, I'm afraid. So let's let's use your training as a historian just to tell, I guess, the story of interest and, and how it began. So one of the things that I, one of the many things I learned from reading your book was that the Hebrew word for interest is translated as snake bite or the bite of a serpent. So can you talk a little bit, let's do a little bit of history before we get onto your central hypothesis, your contention that actually there are many elements to the, to the role of interest and that many of the current challenges, instabilities, fragilities in a modern economy are to do with interest rates being too low versus too high. So let's do a bit of history first. Where is the first recorded instances of interest and what are we? what can we infer from that in terms of its role? Well, we have in the earliest records of civilization in the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia, we have records of lending at interest. And in the ancient languages, we have words for interest that relate to livestock or the offspring of livestock. For instance, in um, in Babylonia, the word for interest is mash, which means a kid goat or a lamb. And what this suggests is that right at the sort of dawn of history, the early early farmers uh, were lending out their livestock and crops and, and grain and, and demanding some increment back in, in terms of interest. And when once we look at what was happening in ancient Mesopotamia, 
you get this is the age of the first cities, you get a real estate market, you get loans for buying houses, you get the charge interest, you get loans for commercial activities, loans for farming, all charging interest. So you, if you look back five millennia ago, you find that lending at interest was performing quite similar functions as it does today. However, you mentioned also that the ancient Hebrew word for interest is a serpent's bite, neshek. And what this points to is that in a predominantly agrarian economy, that high rates of interest can be very painful, particularly the compounding of interest over time. And so in the ancient world, and you find this in the Bible prescriptions against charging interest, you find it in the philosophy of Aristotle, and you find it in, in, in Greek ancient Greek political practices, there are restrictions against lending at interest. There are denunciations of interest, even though interest is a, a common phenomenon. It seems to be, as I argue in the book, interest, we can argue, exists for to perform a number of economic and financial roles. But it also has a sort of psychological element that human beings are uh, mortal. They are, as Irving Fisher said, impatient. And therefore, they will demand a, a premium to receive something in the future as opposed to have it at the present. So there seems to be a, a psychological need for interest aside from the various economic and financial functions that it, it performs. In the long run, are observed interest rates really a function of information, information to assess risk, which you could say is the risk of not getting your money back or the risk of not being paid interest on the amount on your, on your principal that you've lent, and to reward time, which is the opportunity cost of giving your money to someone else. So, Surely it isn't surprising that interest rates are lower today because information is more freely available. And so we have lower rates today because there is more ways to assess risk and therefore there's a better pricing mechanism. And so if you look back to why were interest rates higher in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, part of that must be the asymmetries of information, the lack of information. Is that is that a fair comment? To some extent, it, it's quite difficult to know whether there is a long-term trend in, in interest rates, whether they're trending downwards. I mean, people make the argument that long-term interest rates are trending downwards, but they, 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 they tend to use real interest rates. In other words, the normal rate of interest after inflation. As you know, inflation is often unexpected, uh, as we see uh, in, over the last year or year and a half. And so I don't, the fact is that I, I, I'm, I'm slightly distrustful of using the real interest rate as, as a measure of, of, of whether interest rates are declining. As for, if you look in the Dutch interest rates were very low in the 17th and 18th century, northern Italian interest rates declined quite sharply 
in the 15th century. You've probably seen the, the great history of interest rates by Sidney Homer and Richard Siller. And they argue that civilizations, that the course of interest rates over civilization is U-shaped, that it that the interest rates start high as a civilization established. And you could say that's because there are relatively high levels of risk, probably low levels of savings. And then over the course of time, they come down and they plateau. And then as civilization breaks down and risk increases and perhaps demands for capital rise relative to savings, then um, then interest rates rise. So I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't read too much into the very low interest rates of recent years as part of a long-term secular decline in, in rates. We'll get on to later my argument that, the, that anyhow that the interest rates have been manipulated downwards artificially. So the levels we've experienced in recent years are not the levels they would have been had the interest rate been freely discovered in the market. But what one can say is that over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century, which is largely the period in which we moved from a sort of gold back currency to a fiat currency, we have seen both the highest interest rates in history and the lowest interest rates in history, in particular the lowest interest rates over the last decade, where they turn negative for the first time in five millennia. I think that you asked me earlier why I wrote the book. I think the fact that that the price of time, as I called it, had gone negative for the first time in five millennia is in itself such an extraordinary event that it it, it was worthy of, of deep examination. So to, in a nutshell, I would say it's probably not information as such that brings interest rates down. I think that when financial institutions are created, uh, such as banks that gather savings together and lend out money, that that leads to a greater efficiency in the financial markets or what we call financial deepening. And I think financial deepening in itself brings about lower interest rates. Obviously, you know, if, if we're all hiding our savings under under our bed, which is what actually wealthy merchants did in the 17th century in, in England. They would just have a, they, some of them would just have a, uh, a you know, a, a case of gold under the bed. Well, if, if you're just hoarding your money, then then savings are harder to come by and interest rates would be higher. So it's the development, I'd say, of banking that brought down, brought lower rates. But there is, having said that, not a pronounced secular decline in interest over the last few hundred years. Richard Siller, the co-author of the History of Interest Rates, thinks that a a nominal bond yield of 6% is more or less the norm over the long period. So what has been abnormal is the extraordinarily low rates, well, since the turn of the century and getting extremely low after the global financial crisis. Okay, so I think we're, we're really getting into, into the meat of it now. I was going to ask you about the role of interest rates in revolutions, be they political or economic, and the rise and fall of empires. And I think that's that's a whole seam of history that we could study. But let, let's get on to the, to the main event, really, which is your contention that interest rates going negative the last decade, decade and a half of very low interest rates, even though, of course, interest rates are higher today as we speak. But, but I guess the key question, I think, 
that I took from your book that I still don't know the answer to myself, which is low interest rates cause low economic growth or low economic growth leads to low interest rates? It's a chicken and egg problem. <laughs> the, the conventional central banker view is that low productivity is the rationale for lower interest rates and that low productivity has some arises due to some factors in the real world I, you know i'm not you could say education or the fitness of the workforce or the age of the workforce and or the state of technology any number of reasons might explain low productivity and the conclusion or the inference that central banker makes when they see low productivity is that interest rates should should decline. In fact, they argue that the decline in interest rates in recent years has been a function of, of the low productivity. I look at things the other way around. I say that one of the functions of interest is the allocation of capital. And interest, as you know, is, is the hurdle rate for it for investment. It's embedded in the payback period that we demand from in investment. And the, the other important function of capitalist function is that after in the boom and bust period, we have what the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter calls the process of creative destruction, which is when resources are taken from low return activities and reallocated to higher return investments or businesses. And the way I see it is that after global financial crisis, we brought interest rates down, central banks brought interest rates down to very low levels. And what one saw was that surprisingly in the aftermath of the so-called Great Recession, there were relatively few bankruptcies and business liquidations in the United States and also in Britain. And I think that was a function, a result of interest being extremely low and companies being able to have access to the credit markets and borrow at very low rates. And then we saw the phenomenon appear of the so-called zombie companies. And the zombie companies were businesses that were unprofitable, but stayed in business. and. I think they stayed in business because the cost of borrowing was was very low. And research suggests that the zombie companies, that sectors with large numbers of zombie companies saw uh, less investment, fewer new entrants into those sectors, and importantly, lower productivity growth. So if you see, if you put that together, the absence of creative destruction and the presence of of zombies contributes to this low productivity growth, then the central bankers, having seen that productivity growth has fallen, then lower interest rates even more. And we just get, we were caught in, in I think, a sort of a downward spiral on that front. But low interest rates, you would have thought, I can borrow more cheaply, therefore I can invest more so i'll borrow money and invest at a higher rate of return than the cost of borrowing the money and therefore you'll see rising investment 
and with rising investment usually comes improving productivity. That just hasn't happened. Well, I guess I mean, as I yeah. mentioned to you, that that if you have if you have sectors in which the unproductive companies that would normally fail are still in operation, then there's less in incentive to borrow and to invest and, and start a business in that sector. Uh, but the other thing that we haven't mentioned is that when interest rates are very low, and when the cost of borrowing, corporate cost of borrowing, is below a company's return on capital, there is in our modern financialized economy an incentive to borrow and replace your equity with with debt and that's as you know what we saw what we we've really seen this process of of debt financed or leveraged share repurchases or buybacks we've seen a long period of leveraged buyouts and we've also seen um a lot of merger activity of debt financed mergers and so these are all activities in which money is borrowed by corporations but is not used for productive purposes but really uh, for purposes of of financial engineering and uh, and that wasn't the intention of the central bankers but it was as we all know those of us who've observed the financial world is what happened. But do you, do you think that low interest rates lead to monopolies, dominance in industries, and that actually too many monopolies or very comfortable duopolies, oligopolies leads to clearly less competition, lower investment, and that in itself weighs on economic growth? Yeah, I think so. And, and I cite a, a 19th century, a late 19th century economist called Arthur Hadley, who was also president of Yale. He says interest is the cost of corporate control, which is an interesting comment. You know. um, but of course, it makes sense. You know, if, if I my first job was at an was at Lazard's investment bank, and and if your clients are taking a, a, are seeking to buy companies, then then the low cost of of borrowing uh, will, is an incentive to take over, and what we've, and then I also cite in the book a, uh, a fellow who's a friend of mine called Jonathan Tepper, who wrote a book called The Myth of Capitalism, which was really about the growth of monopoly in the U United States in recent years. And one, and what Te Tepper comes across quite interesting piece of research, which shows that cartels are more likely to form at times of low interest rates, and they're more likely to break up when interest rates are high. So, oh, and then we've got the private equity companies that I mentioned earlier, and at a lower, at a lower level, as you're probably aware, uh, a lot of their activity involves uh, what we call roll-ups of buying, uh, buying companies in, in a particular area, and then merging them together and creating a, some pricing power. So I, I think that the the growth of monopoly, which the classical economists like Adam Smith thought was very bad for the wealth of nations, it, in recent years, that growth of monopoly ha, has been accelerated to a large extent by the low cost of financing and also by the fact that a that the 
regulatory authorities have been quite lax in imposing antitrust regulation. And what I, I what I think this I find this something particularly ironic happens is that the central bankers were keeping interest rates low because they wanted more inflation, while the antitrust regulators were allowing these the creation of monopolies and oligopolies on the grounds that, oh, there would be cost savings that would bring down the prices charged to customers. So you, were, you had two branches of government, if, if you will, acting across purposes. So let's talk a little bit. We're kind of going through your charge sheet of what's wrong with low interest rates and the unintended consequences of them. So let's talk a bit about the role of low interest rates and political cycles, inequality, and therefore the potential for quite meaningful changes in political systems. And is that is that too much of a stretch? I mean, you kind of wrote this, but do you, on reflection, think that's an overstatement that low interest rates can lead to not political revolutions, although I think you argued that they could, but they contribute to some societal problems. And the second part of the question is that if central banks always respond to a crisis by lowering interest rates, I think to use your phrase, it's the, it's the banishment of pain, that if there's any pain in the system, we'll cut rates. That does seep into psychology. It's been called the Fed put, but maybe that has broader societal implications that it's kind of the central bank will always help you no matter what the problem is. So you just cut interest rates and that then affects behavior, changes behavior, which is almost gets you to the sort of Minsky argument that too much stability makes the probability of instability go up. Well, let's deal with the first part of the question first, which is the impact of interest on on distribution of income and wealth. Let's call it that or inequality. And historically, as we mentioned earlier, the, the view of interest is that high interest has been unfair and unjust and led to inequality. And that, that's certainly true when you look at the ancient world where people who were charged too high interest ended up as in debt bondage or, or slavery. So there's certainly an argument, and this is the conventional view as far as I can see of, of most economists who specialize in inequality, there's certainly an argument that high interest rates can create inequality. But I suppose the novelty of my argument is that very low interest rates in a modern financialized economy, one that we live in today, can also create inequality and can also be unjust. And this happens uh, in a number of ways. First of all, asset managers, investors, our fees are a function of our assets under management. Now, if low interests put up the value of, of the market, then fund managers' fees and hedge fund managers' fees increase, regardless of what they, they've done. I mentioned earlier that low interest rates feed an increase in, in investment bank activity. So you get more investment banking fees and, and fees on, on share repurchases, leverage buybacks, private equity, and so forth. So you can see that the low interest rates can feed the growth of the financial sector. And then we have the impact of the difference in outcomes for those who 
already have assets, uh, houses and investments, or have, have already uh, retired and, and bought an annuity, and they benefit from for falling interest rates and higher asset prices. But this is no free lunch because their benefit is offset by the cost borne by the so-called have-nots. In other words, the younger generation who have yet to acquire assets to buy and to buy houses and to save for retirement. As you know, as interest rates come down, the long-term returns of the bonds necessarily decline so that your, that your return on investment will fall over time. It, that also holds true for the stock market. A stock market at a higher level of valuation will deliver a lower return in future. So it's very nice if you already own assets to see house prices, bond prices and stock prices rising. But those gains are gains that, so to speak, have been brought from the future at the expense of those who are going to make investments in the future. So I think I think the upshot of that is the younger generation find it harder to buy houses. That's particularly true in the UK, where house prices have been very elevated for a long period of time. And they become resentful against the capitalist system because they're, as we were saying earlier, the low productivity is feeding through into low income growth and the high asset prices is making it hard to get on the housing ladder and hard to save for retirement. So it's not surprising that a person without any assets, a younger person, would feel that the system was geared against them. So we've been through, I think, a, a pretty good summary of, of your arguments against low interest rates. And again, you know, it's worth remembering that certainly in the US economy today, short-term interest rates are not low. They're, they're, they're high versus certainly a 15-year history. But what are your solutions? What What is it you prescribe? You know, you have become head of the Fed or your governor of the Bank of England or your head of the ECB. Take your pick. What would you do? How would you do it differently? What, what is, you said earlier that interest rates have been manipulated. Manipulated from what? Where should they be? So where do you think you're in charge? Where, how are you setting them with reference to what? And what are they? What is the natural interest rate? Well, I mean, that. Remember you were saying earlier that could one fully understand the question of interest or, or whatever? And I said, I'm not sure that anyone can. The There is a complexity to interest in that it's very difficult to discover what the rate of interest should be. We know we can sort of more or less discover the price of most other goods and services. You know, if a person gets the price wrong, if the producer gets the price wrong, they, they'll go out of business. The central bankers have operated with this mandate of getting to an inflation target in most countries nowadays, around 2%. And it was because inflation was largely in abeyance the last decade and deflationary pre pressures were being felt that that was the rationale for taking interest rates down to these historically low levels. I, I argue that that a narrow inflation target is, is is the wrong mandate to give a central bank, and we can see you know, the banks have been central banks have been following this narrow inflation target, 
keeping rates down low, printing all this money. And it's been leaving aside the question of the problems we've been discussing. It's also failed to control inflation. Um, so I think that the, the narrow inflation target, n narrow, I mean, just focusing on achieving your 2% inflation target over a short period of time is mistaken. I think one should look at a broader number of measures. Uh, interest, for instance, is the cost of leverage and the price of risk. So when interest is very low, you would expect higher leverage and more risk taking. Interest is the capitalization rate for the valuation of assets, houses and stocks and, and bonds and so forth. And so when the interest rate is very low, you would expect speculative bubbles to form. And what I think is that the monetary policymakers should have a much broader view or overview of what's happening in the economy and in the financial sector when they're setting their interest rates rather than just focusing on the inflation target. And the other point, as you know, that I make in the book is that there is a you know, tremendous confusion over the question of deflation, because there are, in effect, there are actually two types of deflation. There is the good deflation that comes about from productivity improvements. It, it, you know, when the price of your, you know, your computer declines, I don't know if it's declining anymore, but it used, the price of computers used to decline every year quite regularly. Well, that that was just because of productivity improvements, improvements in semiconductors and so forth. Uh, and that type of deflation actually makes people better off. And pe people like prices to fall. And I think it was wrong, categorically wrong, for the central bankers to act against the type of deflation, falling prices, that made people better off. And there is another type of deflation, which we call the bad deflation, which is a debt deflation. And that debt deflation is when, after, as we saw in the early 1930s and after the global financial crisis, when banks have losses and constrain their lending and savers start uh, saving and not spending their money, then you can have a downward spiral in prices. And this was pointed out also by Irving Fisher, the American economist. But he says in his famous paper, The Debt Deflation Theory of Great Depressions, that debt deflation arises from a position of over-indebtedness. As you know, the low interest rates in recent years, both before the financial crisis and after the financial crisis, led to a growth of indebtedness. So, in fact, they actually, the central bankers, by targeting this narrow inflation target, were actually building up the conditions for debt deflation, which is really, I mean, we may be on the cusp of another debt deflation now because the U.S., regional banking crisis is quite clearly induced a result of banks having built up interest rate exposure 
on their balance sheet at a time when interest rates were very low. And these type of credit shocks or credit crunches that the US is experiencing at the moment have historically often in the past been followed by periods of deflation. So I suppose my final question is this, which is you've offered a something of a solution, something of an alternate way to, to doing this. Do you think central banks are going to change and stop focusing so narrowly on a level of, uh, of inflation and think more broadly? I think things will move, probably slowly, in future. There is, as you know, this question of central bank digital currencies coming up. And in the very last line of my book, I suggest there is a possibility that a central bank digital currency could really be a, a almost equivalent of a sort of digital gold standard. And under those circumstances, if you if you had a central bank digital currency as as really your basic money, then the cost of borrowing and lending that money would be determined by the market rather than by a, a committee of central bankers. And you'd get much closer to what, what people call the natural rate of interest. The market rate of interest would reflect the demand for and supply of loanable funds. And I, I think if, if we went down that route, that would probably be a, um, a solution, uh, possibly, to the problem of, of asking people, um, fallible economists, to set an interest rate when the interest, as I mentioned in the book, is, is um, the universal price, the, the price that enters into every calculation. How could a, a bunch of people individuals with limited knowledge and limited understanding, including myself, how could they possibly get that price right? I think that's a great place to end uh, with a a very, very difficult question, as we've discussed, and a question that has, I guess, stood the test of time and then no one's really solved it. But it has been great to have you on. It has been great to have this discussion. I think we've touched on many, many important things. So all it remains for me to say is thank you for coming on. Uh, much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Good to speak to you again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. 
Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.